Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Carruthers, and my guest today is Kobe Lyons. We have no idea what we're going to chat about, uh, but I will tell you a bit about Kobe. She's an honorary senior fellow of King's College London. She's an advisory board member of the Carnegie AI and Equality Initiative. She's a member of Standards Australia as a technical expert on the international standards organisation's work on AI standards an affiliate of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society, and a former non-resident fellow of the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. And in her spare time, she does data stuff. So welcome, Kobe. I just fell asleep while you were saying all of that. That was terribly dry and boring. Hi, Kate. (laughs) Well, I I might just start by um, telling people how we met. We have known each other online for many years, possibly even a decade, and we happened to meet when we were on a panel recently and we had such an interesting chat that we decided to just continue it here on the podcast. And it was uh, the panel was really about um, generative AI and ethics and how you can do this safely. And I think these are questions that everybody's trying to ask nowadays. So let, let's just start there, Kobe. Yeah, I should should also say that I've I've missed a flight for one other human, and I've cancelled a flight for one other for one human, and that's you. So I actually cancelled my flight to stay for that panel. I was meant to fly back to Melbourne, and the organisers said, "Oh, Kate Carruthers is the other panel member," and I went, "That's it. I'm staying." So. It was such a delight to meet you in person, although I'm a bit worried because I think you had that same shirt on when I saw you in Sydney, which our viewers can't see, but I love. It is it is my shirt that says I have friends there online. So I hope you've changed that shirt in between. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but I, hope I just you- wear it all the time. I just don't have any other shirts. <laughs> it's probably too much information. But I I really enjoyed the panel, which I then had to run away from at the point where you were talking about how chat. GPT could be used to build apps and build things creatively. And I hear very few, I hear a lot of snake oil and I hear a lot of things that are promised, but you actually know the tech and I'm probably going to ask you questions as much as I'm going to be asked. But can you talk a bit more about that? Because I sort of had to leave the room while you were talking about that. And I really wanted to know more about how you were thinking about how these technologies would not just code, but be more creatively used. Well, I can foresee a future where, you know, one of the banes of my life is I have to have an app for everything that I do on my phone. Yeah. I'm assuming that there will be a future where I'll have my phone still, but I won't need to have apps on it because there'll be some sort of generative AI interface where I'll just say something like, play my favourite song. And that, that device, that mobile telephone, will be able to know where I am. It'll probably know what kind of mood I'm in probably contextually be aware of what I mean by favourite song. It'll probably know what service that favourite song lives on. So it might know that this particular favourite song lives on Spotify because I'm sad at the moment and I'm at the pub um, or something, and it'll play that song. So really the future of generative AI I see as as the interface that we start to operate through, which I think is a really interesting thing. And nobody seems to be thinking about this just yet because everybody's running around with their hair on fire going, oh, my God, it's going to lie to us and hallucinate and yeah, stuff. absolutely. Also, it's brand new. Um, my face is squishing up and I just had a sip of my beverage, which will remain undisclosed on this podcast because I'm immediately thinking about all of the dystopian privacy, personal tracking implications. I mean, I have DuckDuckGo on my phone, which already stops, you know, 4,000 attempts to get access to my data detritus. 
have you thought about those sorts of implications of who would then access and or know about those kinds of types of intimate information about you? Well, it's kind of it's kind of kind of interesting because that was part of the conversation I had last time with Peter Leonard. You know, he he, he was mm. very big on when the Grenier need to regulate these things, and we we are going to do that. So, I'm going. The regulation stuff is going to happen and there are plenty of people thinking about it. There are plenty of people who, you know, done PhDs on it and stuff. Um, so I, I think that the thing we need to do is not lose sight of that but also look for the positive things that we can do with this stuff because we've already kind of lost the fight with for privacy for the most part. I know mm. this is going to make you cry. Mm. But Facebook already has profiles of pretty much every human being on earth, whether or not they've got a Facebook account. I was horrified. I, I'm, I'm not crying yet, but I was horrified. I wrote into a piece recently with Helen Durham about this is very, very nerdy, but they've just changed changed the American uh, Army Manual or the American DOD Manual, Department of Defence Manual, on targeting and the presumption made clear that the presumption is that someone's a civilian until a defence. And all of the lawyers are writing all of these articles about what that means from a legal point of view. And the point that we were making was what data are you relying on? Where's that data coming from? What does that reliance mean? How many people in the battlefield or the fog of war can ask questions that are actually meaningful about what their data source is. Is it calibrated and validated if you're using satellite data, all that kind of technical good stuff. I came across this article about Clearview, which is another one that just, you know, just going to the horrible, which is what I love to do, stops me from crying, is I don't know if you heard this story, but that Clearview was used by one side to send pictures to the other side of the Ukrainian uh, invasion to basically horrify mothers as to how their sons had died. So they identified the bodies and then found the families and then Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like, reading about that. But I that somehow was... had missed that story and was just like, that is next level. Information warfare. The battlefield is everywhere now. But that's during wartime. So the dystopian, again, kind of unless optimistic about the people who've got the PhDs on regulation because I think a lot of the people with PhDs on regulation, I might alienate some of your listeners here, I don't think they all understand the data or the tech and how it works. And I do think there's a disconnect right now in a lot of the conversations where I think the data scientists hope the regulators can fix everything and the regulators hope that the data scientists can fix everything and there's a lot of cross-communication. Look, I think that that we're... Well, I I keep saying in in the data space it's not, it's a team sport it's not an individual sport we're only going to win at this if we if we bring everyone together and there needs to be a genuine diversity of people so there needs to be people with a deep understanding of the tech a deep understanding of cybersecurity a deep understanding of legislation regulation and all of that stuff plus plus the apps because the app people also need to understand the data landscape and one of the things that I've got a beef with the computer science schools around the world is typically you can graduate without any understanding of databases and data. And I think that that is a fundamental problem with, with computer science. What would you do to change it? Well, I think as a starting point, we could we could make computer science students study databases so that they at least understand them because for the most part, they're going out to be developers and they will need to work with data structures. And, you know, it's it's kind of problematic you can get through without it. Anyway, so going going back to the point though, um, I always 
say that it's it's a team sport. So I think that this is a genuine diversity thing. You need diverse uh, knowledge and skills, but you need diverse, people from diverse backgrounds. So you need people from marginalised communities and stuff because we've already seen it that you you don't understand the issues with technology and and marginalised communities unless you're from a marginalised community or you had at least had some contact with them. I think it took me years to realise, I fully agree, which makes this a very boring conversation because I completely agree with you. I think it took me years to realise how much of my positioning is from my history and that I'm, I'm half German. I grew up part of the time in Germany and have spent a lot of time learning about my German history and my German family. And it's really complicated pulling all of that history apart, but also with this acute awareness that the data can be used for things that aren't great. Um, even I was back in Berlin for the launch of their AI strategy, which was quite literally a sausage fest. Nuremberg has these tiny little sausages and there were nearly all men attending and they were all carrying these enormous plates piled high of these, if anyone knows the Nuremberg sausages, they're kind of about the size of your little finger just to give you a visual. And they were just plates of these being carried around. Um, it was it was a very interesting conference. But you know, being back in Germany, there still there is still a, there are a lot of people who will only use cash. For example, there is a you know there are hangovers, legacy hangovers of the history of the way that data is used and the way that and there are many more examples of this. There's a group a requirement for group privacy in Germany in the constitution. So it's not just about individuals and PI the way that we talk about um, information here. Those sorts of things affect you. So everybody, to your point, brings their own history and their own sensitivities and their own nuances. And sometimes I just feel like I'm pointing out the really obvious, but at the same time, to your point in a team sport, you've also got other people pointing out things to me where I go, oh, I just hadn't hadn't really thought about that. It was like, you know, everyone watching Barbie had a slightly different angle because there was so much in it for everyone. If you haven't seen Barbie, go see Barbie. I haven't seen Barbie yet. I'm saving it up. It was great. It was actually really interesting. So I had a conversation with someone who said, yeah, there's that scene where there's like a thanks to the team, we did it all together, but doesn't actually quite acknowledge the contribution from the minoritized woman, ironically. And this woman was also a minoritized woman and said, you know, that was a real nod to the minoritized communities that they don't get enough acknowledgement. I was like, I completely missed that signaling, right? We all miss each other's kind of stories. But I mean, the bit I like about this work is that you're constantly breaking your own views, you're challenging your own views, but you're also just having to listen and engage with all kinds of different people all the time, which I I love. I'm probably not as, I don't think we can give up on privacy. I don't know that we can have democracy in a sustainable environment and world without it, uh, even if it's. I've got a different perspective because I just see privacy as as a 20th century phenomenon. And I, I believe that it was only became a thing when people started to live in suburban houses and finally got their own bedrooms. Because before that, you lived in a village, you lived in a home, you shared sleeping quarters with a number of people privacy wasn't a thing so it's it's a particularly 20th 20th century affordance and what we we need to come to terms with the fact that we're living in a global village a global online village that is a panopticon and and it's no different to us living in a medieval village but with better tech um, and people are the same. That's the thing. So the same people that, you know, burned the witches still mm. live among us. They do, and now they have much more powerful tools thanks to tech. I suppose I mean, there are two kind of, and I'm not a privacy expert, but I love history, so I've gone down the 
you know, where did privacy come from route. Um, one of them, there's a fantastic book about the history of privacy that was published a year or two ago, and I can give you the link to give to the listeners if they want it, but it was basically around um, the Hamilton musical. Like it was about the regulators and the people who were prominent who were having journalists in their backyard photographing them, and it even came down to Jefferson who had underage slave wives and he didn't want this to come out and there was this real push to kind of protect the elite. So it was an interesting, it's an interesting history to kind of frame when you think about it as the privacy of the elite was protected. It was never about the common person having any kind of, you know, privacy at all, but it was behind the high fences of the very wealthy. Whatever happened on their property should be remain secret, which is kind of problematic. But that framing was new to me. The framing that I'm more familiar with, and I know Ed Santo talked about this just recently on his podcast, on his presentation with Lizzie O'Shea, where they hacked um, some Labor MPs accounts and sort of showed what they could find out about him online. Didn't hack them, just kind of found out what data detritus he'd left lying around, which was a fabulous podcast as well. But Ed was sort of saying about, you know, the concept of privacy also coming out of World War II, that, you know, if you haven't, those who haven't read the book, um, about the punch card, IBM, IBM's role in the punch cards and how that enabled the Holocaust. Like that was really at the point where they were still using these enormous punch cards and these enormous machines. That's how the meticulous nature and documentation of sort of tracking and, and trying to exterminate people came from, which, you know, bringing it back to my joyful light topics as I do. Um, that's kind of the framing of privacy for me. That's that's the history of it. And thinking about all of the multiple authors since then, so Kapech who, you know, wrote Roberton's Universal Robots and talked about even then the issue of robots taking jobs and it for anyone who hasn't read that short story he coined the term robot and it's just one of the best books in terms of the philosophical he was you know deeply disliked by by Hitler and others because he spoke out and talked about how technology can not only be used but ex expedite those kind of witch hunters you're talking about so it's that speed and scale at which those sorts of behaviors can be enabled and be unable to be controlled or not be controlled that's of concern so yeah it's a really it's a tricky one I think it's it's more nuanced you know like like let's take Rwanda for for an example you know the only technology they had to help was radio and they were able to execute a genocide very efficiently um and it wasn't through any data that was stored. It was just through local knowledge of who was in what tribe. Um, so I keep, I do keep saying to people, we are the problem. It, it's yeah, us but it's, it's a little bit like guns. Guns don't kill people. People don't. People well, kill gun, people. But a gun, a gun on its own is is just a piece of metal. It's it is the people, and and you know, technology too is is inert without us. Well, it yeah, might so not be in the near future, you know, and, and one of the challenges will be when you put human beings with some of the problems we've just touched on yeah. together with autonomous systems that, that can run without human input and do things, and especially when they are coupled with, you know, things like robocops which are coming and stuff, and that's that's the sort of really dystopian stuff. Yeah, so I was... I agree with you. And speaking of PhDs, do you, do you know James Parker? Mm-hmm. Just do a shout out. His PhD was actually on the use of sound in the Rwandan genocide. So specifically on this point. And he's he's I mean, he's now working on been working on voice recognition systems for years. His work is fascinating. But his thing was 
and I don't want to misquote him, this is very, very, sorry, James, if you're hearing this, um, very broad strokes, was looking at, yeah, that that basicness of a tool that can incite violence that can can bring people along. So anyway, that was just a footnote. But I think, I mean, you're right. On one level, I, I do think having sat with this and read different authors, there is sort of a thought line of thought that certain kinds of technology can actually, and again, um, Capek was one of these. Um, Weizenbaum, Joseph Weizenbaum was another. Uh, Nissenbaum, I think, talks about this a little, a little bit as well as sort of the power that's inherent. And it's a little bit, it's, I mean, it's as simple as the, the power in the tool, right? So the, the book that I wrote, I started with this pile of bones and then these skulls that were missing teeth. Like even the very first civilizations, they both fought wars, but they also protected their, you know, clearly aging, unwell populations. So this tension between sort of humanity and, and violence is just a, an ongoing thing, to your point. So I think fundamentally I agree with you. The issue we have the problem. It'll all be better once the AIs kill us all. I'm not sure if I just, like, drop the mic and walk away now. <laughs> Do people think you're joking? Like, um, yeah, no, I, I, the trouble is the people. The trouble is the people, right? So it's always going to be that if you've got tools that are super powerful in the hands of a few and, you know, again, more people are saying again this week, uh, where is the global south in this conversation? Where are the other voices in this conversation from a global perspective? We just we've got a very very narrow group of people talking about what we need to be doing, and a lot of them just think we should all you know end up in bunkers, or them end up in bunkers and survive, and we all die anyway. To your point, <laughs> all those billionaires buying land in New Zealand. Oh, so the long one, of, one of the things yeah. that occurred to me, I was listening to um, Stephen Hassan's um, Influence Continuum podcast the other day. And he had a guest on called Matt Bywater who lives in Shanghai and he was talking how, you know, they've got their social credit system yep. that sees all. And he was talking about how confronting it was when he jaywalked mm-hmm. and he was then on a big screen in the town, in the centre of town, being sh- publicly shamed for having jaywalked. So jaywalking, you know the history of it, right? The car industry came up with it as a like we didn't want yeah. people. Yeah, but but in, in China they take their law seriously and then they like to publicly shame people that are not complying. So what I'd and like to see they is they can automate that. it because, because they've got the data. Can we do that for bad behaviour rather than like jaywalking? Because I just saw <laughs> going back to academia, a centre for excellence was just granted to research gambling. Did you see that this week? No, no. University. No, but I mean, but, but I mean, we need to we need to come up with a thing like like either it's inherently wrong or inherently right, isn't it? Like, should we publicly shame people? Well, you know, we got rid of the stocks where we used to throw fruit at people for doing bad stuff. But we tickled them is, too. I didn't mind the tickling. I kind of find that amusing. But that said, I wouldn't want it to happen to me. But no, I'm just wondering if you flipped it and you did it against the powerful. I mean, this is the thing. These tools are always by the powerful against the more vulnerable, right? But the people who have access to the tech and the, the tools, but. I'm just thinking like a research centre that is funded by a gambling company, like I'd like to see that publicly shamed. I'd like to see things that are that I disagree with publicly shamed. But who gets to decide is really the question here, right? It's that Jefferson's Moose question. I don't yeah. know. I don't love public shaming as a thing, but I think maybe a different term would be a bit Orwellian, but, you know, bringing some of the misdemeanours to light that are beyond jaywalking, things that are misconduct or, you know, allowing people to whistleblow and maybe that would be a positive, but the tools won't be used that way, right? They're always going to be used against the little guy crossing the road against the traffic. Was it a flattering image of him? How big was the image? 
It was a big screen, apparently. So, you know, it's on, on a big screen in up in the town. So, but I mean, it's it's interesting to consider all of these issues. I've I've in recent years become quite cynical about if only people knew the truth that something would change. Because in like in America, you know, if only someone would tell the truth about something, things would change. But plenty of truths been told, nothing's changed. So how how do we how do we affect change? So I don't see that as a technology thing per se. And I think it'd be really interesting to talk about Twitter or shitter, as I understand it is now pronounced. Um, well, as you know, I vacated that platform, um, formerly known as Twitter. Um, I don't know what's going on there anymore. What is going on there? Are you still there? I mean, you tried to lure me across to Mastodon, which I've, I found a bit clunky and I've been trying to engage with. So which, thank you for all your help, by the way. I really appreciated it because I was a hesitant adopter. So the interesting thing for me is is that, A, we've seen Musk exposed as an utter buffoon, which mm. is hilarious, but also that that he um, seems to be actively trying to push the platform rightward and encouraging right-wing voices there. And it's really interesting that that I can remember in the early days of Twitter when when I was still a tech utopian, it was a long time ago, um, thinking that, you know, democratisation of communication was was a good thing. Yeah. And um, in in recent times I had uh, occasion to re- reread Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, mm-hmm. which is a really prescient book, and realised that, that probably he was right. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, I think... Oh, who who coined in shitification? To Google it. Oh, Marcus uh, Gary Marcus has been using it a lot, but I think it was Cory Doctorow who did it. I think it was. Yeah, he's got a book on shitification, which is just that you know the models are based on things being free. Eventually, someone comes in, they want to pay the you know they want to make money, and whether it's you know Reddit or Twitter or whatever it is, there's just yeah that, that's what happens. They just become. Terrible. I mean, I think I should also just clarify, I don't think public shaming is generally a good thing in that comment before was slightly facetious. I just feel like I need to <laughs> clarify that. But I don't know if you saw the article on, and this is something I spend, you know, when I my brain cells have, have capacity. Ronan Farrow wrote an amazing, incredibly long article about Elon Musk's rule, which I'll, I'll also send you a link to if you're interested. I think it's like an hour if you listen to yeah, it. Yeah, we'll pop, we'll pop it in the show notes. But yeah, he he's really good, and and he's amazing. So yeah, the issue is the power, right? Elon has the satellites that, you know, not wanting to keep dragging back to defense, but like he's he's got some power that is greater than many of the states in many many ways, and he's not a bright button, and he's not necessarily a good actor, and the regulations don't apply to him in the same way, and that's probably a really good case study of no matter how you regulate. Again, that power imbalance that he has. This article is just meticulously researched. It's incredible, but just how much power and control this guy has. Well, and it go, it goes back to to something that I've been saying for about a decade now. Is that I I genuinely think social media platforms should be regulated um, like they were utilities because they are in effect utilities. And you know, if he was in a different country. Um, 
his Starlink would also be heavily regulated, but because it's in the US, you know, regulation is a lighter touch there than in the rest of the world. Yes and no. I had the pleasure of being at the Space Agency in Canberra recently for reasons I won't go into. And we spent a lot of time, we spent a day just sort of listening to, you know, the recent change in the government space. I don't know how you're going to categorise this conversation, by the way, just like defence, space, public shaming, it's, you know, yeah. covering it all. Um, I was horrified to understand that we don't have any access to secure satellites of our own. So all of the data we're getting from both the commercial land environmental perspective is through commercial satellites, including Starlink, but also from a national security defence perspective. Yep. Again, this, like, it I hate seems to my people to me. Night, but like, I keep, it just seems a little unlikely and, and it was funny because the, the conference was framed as sort of you know we just want to frame why we need our own satellites and I was sitting there going do we have like is this really where we're at we actually need to have a conversation to point out that having data that's secure that you can trust for our national security is a good idea like well this this, this go this is this is hilarious because you know I genuinely think Australia needs its own sovereign capability in a number of areas and I had some conversations with people in government, both state and federal, including defence. Was it last year? I think it was last year. Might have been the year before. Anyway, saying, please tell me in writing that you require me to keep our data in our in the Australian jurisdiction. And they were like, we don't care where it is. And I was like, even defence data? And they're like, no, we don't care where it is. And I was like, what? So... I could not find a single person in the Australian government, the state government or defence, who were willing to instruct me that would have helped me with a contract thing. I imagine from a budgetary perspective to justify. No, 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 no. So basically we we were wanting a, a, a ruling from them so that we could finalise some contract negotiations. Yeah. And uh, no one was willing to say that that data needs to stay in Australia. On, in, on the other hand, you know, um, New South Wales Health does tend to specify that they want their data to stay in New South Wales jurisdiction, which is which is sensible. Um, but you know, so people are now assuming that data can be secured adequately in other jurisdictions and be maintained safely. And you know, we've we've all know that there's like there was the backdoors on the US routers. So, you know, people used to used to buy their routers um, from the US and uh, have them shipped via Japan so they never landed on mainland US so they didn't get backdoors put in them. So that's how it used to happen. So anyway, it's just a strange, a strange world that we live in where um, Australia has not really thought about its own sovereign capabilities in a number of areas and in particular in respect of data. I, I mean, this is the sound of my jaw dropping. It's just, you know, forget the submarines, get our data on shore, make sure we have sources that are reliable and secure, which kind of it's a good opportunity to, can I mention your table on your website, which I think is awesome and which you mm -hmm. shared. So I also shared that at the the uh, space conference that I went to in Canberra and a number of people are now using it with boards. So you've got this picture with these questions that are really basic questions like where is your data who has access to it is it secure like it's not rocket science right i 
kind of get asked by boards and people in government quite regularly, you know, what should we do to secure AI? What should we do to secure our data? And those questions really just nail it. And in fact, a lot of the conversations I go to are, do you have a password password generator? Oh, no, I use one password. Okay. Do you know how easy it is to use that? Does anyone else have access to your computer? Like, it's the human to your point as well. that People, people are the problem. We're, it's definitely not the dogs. <laughs> look, people. Look, it was one of the, one of the things that I've always found is is people on social media are unutterably kind and helpful, and also horrible. Often the same people. But I think I think this is where we maybe differ. That I have less hope as a as a reformed lawyer. I have less hope that regulation is going to fix the people. Regulation is a a blunt, slow, and expensive instrument. And so it's one of the tools in the toolbox, but we also need a cultural change. We need to be having better data literacy. We need to, there's so many pieces, which sort of goes to this, you know, why are we having this conversation about sovereign data is because I don't think people actually understand how much of what we are as a country or every country relies on data to function, right? If the cables go, the data's not accessible. Everything's driven by data now. So the banking system, intellectual property, Every kind of tra- land conveyancing, everything's data now. So if you don't have your data sorted and you don't know where it is, not, know the answer to all those questions, which we'll put in the show notes, um, you're not going to know, you're not going to be able to say hand on heart that my data is secure. And I think that's what differentiates you from a lot of data practitioners and one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your work, um, just to fangirl you a little bit, is that you get the human bit. Like I think a lot of data people get the data, but they don't understand you've got to kind of get the people on board to understand what the implications are. And it's not rocket science. Again, it's just kind of bringing people along on that journey to to make it less scary and more accessible and get them to understand what the risks are, which I think that diagram is just like it's perfect for anyone who hasn't seen it. Oh, well, that that's a very kind thing for you to say, and probably we need to sort of draw this to a close now. Thank you so much for your time, and lovely to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'll send you all those links. And that is it for another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Crothers. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice. See you next time.